Welcome to Open Deeply Season 3, as we burn down shame and reclaim our power. The truths society pushes into the shadows are the very things that connect us. Truths around sexual authenticity, the wisdom of plant medicine, the pursuit of equity, and beyond. To open deeply, as Jack Kornfield says, takes tremendous courage, a warrior spirit. This unconventional path takes just that. So join us. Together, we have the courage to open deeply. Here are your hosts, Sunny Megatron and Kate Laurie. Welcome to Open Deeply. I'm Kate Laurie, and my co-host is sex educator, Sunny Megatron. In my personal life, many of my dear friends are sex-positive thought leaders. This is a group of incredibly sexy, powerful, sexually embodied humans who identify as women. Despite all our strength and knowledge, many of us were completely blindsided by menopause. Here are just a few symptoms. Decreased clitoral sensitivity. Oh, fuck no. Brain fog. Not okay. Painful sex. Not on my watch. Rapid weight gain. Some gain 30 pounds in a year. Decreased libido and a variety of weird and painful health issues that came on in rapid succession. But you can't make a group of vibrant vagina and vulva owners go quietly into the shadows. Fuck that shit. So we went searching. And one of my finds was the wonderful Dr. Kelly Casperson. Dr. Casperson is a board-certified practicing urologist interested in the power of the mind and science to change our views on sexuality. After many years in practice, she has had a life-changing patient that made her curious to learn everything she could about female sexual wellness. After she learned all she could, a little voice in her head kept telling her to speak, and she knew just helping people in her clinic in her hometown was not going to be good enough. The world needed her, and she knew that women aren't broken in the bedroom. They just hadn't had the proper education, and neither had their partners. And so she listened to that voice and created a podcast called You Are Not Broken, which consistently ranks in the top 10 in the Apple sexuality category in multiple countries. It has been nominated for an ASECT award for three years running. And from that, she has created online courses teaching women the fundamentals of their anatomy and physiology, discussing their limiting beliefs and normalizing their normal female sexual function to empower them to live their best love life. Through the pursuit of certification with the Life Coach School and the North American Menopause Society, she now combines her medical knowledge with mind work to help women with surgical precision. An engaging and humorous storyteller, she is nationally known as a wonderful speaker and is known for being approachable, like your big sister, who's a doctor, making people comfortable with these very uncomfortable topics and changing lives in the bedroom and out with her practical, useful tips. Her book, You Are Not Broken, Stop Shooting All Over Your Sex Life, is out on Amazon and Audible. 
But before we get started, I need to remind you that Open Deeply Podcast is made for your entertainment and informational desires only. The podcast, any opinions we share, and any resources, including social media and emails from us, are not therapy, medical care, or professional advice, and do not create a patient-client relationship. None of the information, opinions, suggestions, resources, or exercises mentioned in this podcast should be used without clearance from your health care provider and receiving professional legal counsel. All opinions, information, and ideas expressed by the guests are solely their own. If you need emergency mental health or medical help, please call 911 or 988 or go to the nearest emergency center. We hope you enjoy the show. All right, Dr. Casperson, I am so glad to have you on Open Deeply. I think I discovered you on Instagram. Your page on Instagram is amazing. And this whole business about you being a urologist but yet you feel so impassioned to help women related to menopause and all these issues. I just feel like it's so, dare I say, noble. And I really am inspired by you and I love the work you do. And so I wanted to just lead with asking you, do you feel that we're being equitable to all genders related to hormones? And how do you feel patriarchy is impacting those who experience menopause? Yeah, good question. And thank you for having me. No, we're not equitable whatsoever. Nobody sees that more than urologists, right? And I think specifically female urologists, because I I experience the world differently than my male counterparts. Female urologists are 10% of all urologists. There's about a thousand of us in America now. So there's not, it's not a lot. But I just kept getting on my soapbox in my clinic, like my poor nurses, right? Like every damn day they had to listen to me be like, this is bullshit. Listen to this. Because it's like men come in and they're like, I'm a little tired and I can't have sex for the three hours straight that I usually do. And we're like, oh my God, give them testosterone and Viagra, right? And with women, we're like, are you suffering enough? But is it enough suffering? You know, it's like this level of suffering that we're not like, we don't question the men. I'm like, does your soft dick like make you suffer? We just assume you're suffering because you're in a doctor's office talking about your problems, right? Like, how is a woman in a doctor's office talking about her problems not suffering enough? She had to, like, find parking and childcare, And, like, you are in a doctor's office because you're suffering. Why are we questioning you? And we don't question the men like we question the women. And I think this whole hormone thing, if men's testosterone went to zero at age 50 and their penis shrunk, there'd be a national vaccine. Right. Right, right. And could you kind of elaborate in, on some of the ways that you feel like it's inequitable? I mean, in, in the ways you feel that those that are going through menopause are adversely impacted these days. I know a lot of my friends, it's like we all, most of my friends, they're sex positive. They're aware of sexuality and they've had amazing sex lives across their life and very much in their empowerment in their body in a lot of ways. And when they hit menopause, they were still blindsided by a million things. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think our education is really poor, right? Like we think we think menopause is a hot flash. We don't know that it's all these other things, right? So I think part of the equality and the empowerment is like people with these bodies need the education to know what's going to happen with their bodies. And in my book, I have one chapter on menopause. And even I was like, should I put this in there? Like, I want to talk about sex for all the people. There are 23-year-olds who have sex issues. And I was like, hold on. 
everybody needs to know about menopause, including the penis owners who want to sleep with the people who are going through menopause. Like this is an everybody needs to know sort of event. And I've kind of, you know, my tagline now is like 50% of the population is not a niche. Oh, your niche of like menopause and sex. And I'm like, how is that a niche? By definition, it's not a niche. <laughs> like it is very, very large. But, you know, another example of inequality in menopause and, and sexual health is like Viagra now and Viagra's cousins are pennies on the dollar over the counter in many, many countries. And 90% of penis owners want to sleep with a female, statistically speaking. And vaginal estrogen, which is very safe. I would say very necessary for many people to have sex after menopause because of what happens with genital urinary syndrome and menopause. It's either horrifically expensive if you don't know the loopholes, which you have to know, which I know, so that's why I have a podcast. Or number two, the FDA black box warning on vaginal estrogen is wrong. And it says probable dementia, probable dementia, which is wrong. There are no studies showing vaginal estrogen causes probable dementia. And it's like, we're just okay with having complete inadequacy, miseducation on the FDA label for something that like the Viagra owners need in their house to sleep with. Yeah. I mean, I had cervical cancer back in 2020 and I didn't really figure out this distinction until, and you tell me if I have something wrong, but this year I found out, oh, the topical vaginal estrogen cream is way lower than any, any kind of pill that you would swallow. And it's so low and it's so centralized that it's not really a risk to you getting cancer or anything, you know, and that, that it's very, very safe. It took me four years to understand that distinction, even though I was every now and then reading up on it. Yeah. Well, you know, I tell women, I'm like, listen, I wish this just wasn't called vaginal estrogen. I wish it was called like, you know, something lovely sounding because even the word estrogen scares people again, inappropriately. But there is a paper showing that a full year of vaginal estrogen is equivalent dosing to one oral estrogen pill. Wow. A year. Yeah. yeah, a full year wow. of vaginal estrogen is wow. one right. day. I mean, the difference is huge. It's a huge, huge difference. But, it, you know, it's, it's, it's called estrogen. It's, it's from crazy. that study from years ago, right? There was a study that came out like what, 10 years ago or something? 20 that, now. 20 years ago. That 20 still years ago. just screwing up the United States. Everybody uh -huh. thinks that estrogen is going to cause yeah. cancer based on this study that's incorrect, that's yeah. 20, 20 years old. I mean, I'm a crazy radical, but a good way to control people is to tell them something their body naturally makes is trying to kill them. That'll make them scared. Yeah going yeah listening to you say you know ab about the education vulnerable share for everyone even though i'm a clinical sexologist i'm a certified sex educator and i'm a menopausal newbie i know nothing nothing absolutely nothing my doctors are just oh well nah, you're the age <laughs> hot flash <laughs> and that's it so Basic question, what are the benefits of people who experience menopause? What are the benefits of them taking hormones? Yeah, I like to say any menopause educator or hormone expert who's worth their salt in anything is going to say, we're not here to say everybody should be on hormones or everybody should do anything. My job is really to provide the education and then you get to decide what to do with it. But most, most people can take hormones. 
And if there was a medication, and I like, I hate using the mail as the default, but I think it does help explain why we think about things the way we do. But if there was a medication, a drug that men could take between the ages of 50 and 60, that increased their life expectancy by three to four years, decreased all-cause mortality by 30%, decreased the risk of colon cancer by 30%, significantly improved their sex lives, decreased the risk of insulin resistance and diabetes. What am I missing? Of course, helps you sleep, decreases hot flashes, decreases is the best drug to decrease the risk of osteoporosis for prevention. All the men would be on it. That drug is called estrogen. And everything I just quoted are studies that looked at, you know, these people took hormones and these people did not take hormones. And a lot of that information that I just quoted is actually from the Women's Health Initiative study. This is a billion dollar study designed not to answer the question, are hormones good or bad between the ages of 50 and 60? It was designed to answer the question, can we use estrogen as primary prevention for heart disease? And they threw a bunch of 75-year-old smokers on it and had some bad outcomes. Also, the study was not randomized for your risk of breast cancer. You were not screened for your risk of breast cancer coming in. And what it did show was that estrogen only, and we can niche down on this, but if you only took estrogen and not progesterone, which you need to take if you have a uterus, you actually decrease your risk of breast cancer. Estrogen decreases your risk of breast cancer. That didn't make the media. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as somebody who, you know, whose doctors didn't, my doctor didn't talk to me about hormones, nothing, nothing. And I'm one of those people so far, I'm pretty symptomless. I don't have hot flashes. I, you know, I'm like, it's pretty good, pretty good, you know. And I just assumed, well, I guess that means that I shouldn't even consider hormones because aren't hormones treating symptoms that are bothering me. But it sounds like what you're saying, not necessarily, like it may or may not be a good choice for me, but just because I'm not experiencing symptoms, that's not an automatic don't need them. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting. So if you look at the United States Physicians Task Services Task Force, this is basically an advisory board, right? And so they came out last year and they said, Hormones should not be used for primary prevention of any disease on a nationwide population level. People took that to say, don't take this to prevent any problems from happening. That's not really what they said. They said on a nationwide level, there isn't a drug to take to prevent disease, which is fair. There is no drug that everybody should take to prevent a disease. Not even baby aspirin meets that criteria. Statins don't meet that criteria, right? And so I took what they say, like, yeah, don't just throw everybody on hormones. There are some risks and not everybody can take it. But I think where that's gone is to that, are you suffering enough, right? And since you aren't suffering, then you shouldn't take hormones. That's kind of where they took it. But there's so many people who are like, listen, my family had heart disease. My mom's got osteoporosis. At what point do I say for me and for what my health risks are, hormones make sense? And my counter is like, you can't feel osteoporosis happening. You can't feel heart disease happening. You can't feel insulin resistance happening. You can't feel so many things, right? And so it's going to be an interesting couple of years when we start to figure out what do we do with the asymptomatic people who want to optimize their health? Right. And I think, again, Western medicine, we're really good at treating disease. We're awesome. We basically like cured infectious diseases and we're super great with trauma now. We're really, really great with cancer. Western medicine is very good at treating disease. We are horrific at preventing disease. 
Mm. Right. Mm. So we leave that up to the individual, like try to eat well, try to exercise well, drinks, maybe water is probably better than soda, right? Like the preventative stuff is on you. And at what point do you get to be empowered to be like, I think the preventative stuff for me includes some hormones. Mm. I'm curious if you are just doing the vaginal estrogen cream, which as we've mentioned, it's way lighter than other options. Does it still have some of the preventative effects that you listed, or is that merely just to maintain your vaginal health? Vaginal bladder health. But I mean, it's still, so just to clarify, vaginal hormones are just for pelvic health. Everything I said with all the like, you know, global 30% decrease of X, Y, and Z, that's for systemic hormones. But it's still another good question, right? People come to me after they've stopped having sex for five years because it hurts so bad. They didn't know why it hurt, right? They needed vaginal estrogen. They needed lubrication to keep their skin soft. People come to me after they've got severe clitoral phimosis, likely from low hormones. At what point, and, you know, these are the conversations I have with my expert friends, is like, of what point do we just start, hey, you're a sexually active person who loves not having urinary tract infections, who loves not having bladder leakage and overactive bladder. At what point do you just start on a vaginal estrogen product because it is so safe to prevent these things from happening? That's the big unknown. And so with the cost-benefit analysis with systemic estrogen, if you are somebody that could get cancer, then you, even though systemic estrogen can help in this long list of ways that you just said, it still might not be good for somebody who's had cancer before, right? Again, it depends. And it depends what type of cancer. It depends upon what stage of the cancer it was. It depends upon what oncologist you have. You know, I have friends who have had breast cancer who have had breast cancer recurrence, and they are currently on systemic hormones because their quality of life is so much better. And we have a decent amount of data to show that it does not increase your risk of recurrence. Now, I wouldn't say that that's standard of care, but I would say for the people who are very good at advocating for themselves, they are finding out how to get on hormones. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, and I've heard you speak on that before because it seems like both in my private practice and just out in the world, I'm running into people getting cancer more. Like just recently, two people that I'm aware of that are either a client or a friend that are very young have gotten breast cancer and had double mastectomies. And they're being told, don't be on any hormones, they're on hormone blockers, all that kind of stuff. What would you say to that? I'm just curious. Yeah, I mean, I would refer to Dr. Avram Blooming and then Dr. Corinne Men, who are two big, big experts on this that I've had on my podcast. Dr. Corinne Men, who's a breast cancer survivor who's on hormones. Dr. Blooming, who is an oncologist who treated breast cancer, whose wife had breast cancer, who's on hormones, right? So really, a lot of this education is estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer. Let's run through that because it's fun mental games, right? Just let's have some fun. If estrogen caused breast cancer, why wouldn't pregnant women be getting more breast cancer when your estrogen's in the thousands, right? Wow. If estrogen caused breast cancer, why are the majority of people who get breast cancer postmenopausal and not on hormones? If estrogen caused breast cancer, why in the Women's Health Initiative study, the women who were taking estrogen alone had decreased risk of breast cancer? These are important right? questions. You play these important questions. And I think the other misnomer is people say, oh, my breast cancer is estrogen positive. They take that to mean estrogen caused my cancer. That's not what it means. It means you've got some receptors on the cancer cells that can attach estrogen to it, but it doesn't mean it caused it. So we really, you ask the experts, and again, this is not black and white. This is complex. You ask the experts, you ask Dr. Blooming, who is a 
medical oncologist who treated breast cancer. I say, fine, if estrogen doesn't cause breast cancer, what causes breast cancer? Mm. And he's like, we don't know. Mm. Which we hate that answer, don't right, we? We hate right. that answer. We want hormones that are good or bad. We want everybody should take it or nobody should. We want black and white. Medicine is not giving us black and white. And that's what leads so many people back to this, if I'm getting this right, the FDA product label and the Women's Health Initiative and how problematic it is. And on the label, doesn't it, it says, as you say, that estrogen can cause dementia, all these other things. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah. Yeah, the brain dementia one is fascinating to talk about. First of all, that probable dementia is on the vaginal estrogen product, which is insane because it doesn't leave your pelvis. How is it even getting, it doesn't even get to your brain, right? So Women's Health Initiative, what they did was they took a whole bunch of women who were many years past menopause and threw them on estrogen. In some of them, we noticed a little bit more dementia, a little more stroke, a little more cardiovascular disease, usually in the people who are more than 10 years past menopause, average age of menopause in this country, 51. So we're talking like 75-year-olds, right? And this is where the timing hypothesis comes in of if you're going to take hormones, take hormones when your body's still young, where it hasn't gone years without seeing hormones. So it's like, you're fine that you're not deciding to be on hormones now. You could decide next year, you're fine. But like around year 10, your body is changing, even though you can't feel it, your body is changing. Your arteries are becoming harder. You're getting more calcification. You then throw estrogen on that body and you're going to destabilize some plaques. That's where we're going to see those side effects for. So we have data that in young menopause, we're seeing a decreased risk of dementia on the women who are on estrogen. Ooh, I'm going to talk to my doctor. I am convinced. Yeah, we need to have a conversation. It's that timing hypothesis, right? And they're like, if it's doing anything, it's because it's you've got this, and I hate to say it, but young body, right? This body that's seen estrogen, and now you're just continuing the estrogen. There's not anything too alarming for that. But you take this older body that hasn't seen estrogen and you throw on some hormones, it gets a little spicy in there. And on your podcast, you have a whole episode on why boomers are going to be pissed off. And it's what you're talking about right now, where a lot of the and you can speak more eloquent than me, but on this, but that a lot of boomers are wanting to get on the train, you know, and they're like, oh, I can have all these benefits. And basically, you're saying that it might be too late, that you have to do it within the 10 years post 50 or post when your menopause starts. Yeah. I mean, so that's the rough guidelines. And again, people will, you know, they want black and white. We want this to be very easy. Right. And it's like, it's not 10 years in one day. You can't have hormones now. Like there's nothing magical about 10 years in one day. It's just that the women's health initiative, when you broke it apart by ages, the older you were, when you started, you increased your risk. And I think nobody's good at statistics, but it's like when we talk about risks and relative risks, like people are like, can you just make it easier? And it's like, no, because we're not Toyotas, you know, like this is a diverse amount of humans with a diverse amount of genetics and a diverse amount of past medical history. And we can't just apply 100. It's 100 percent safe. It's 100 percent bad. I just had a friend whose mom had has osteoporosis. Very frail. She's past the 10-year window. She's a boomer who should be pissed, basically, right? And so now she's suffering osteoporosis. She's thin. She's frail. And long discussion with primary, her primary care of like, should I go on hormones? Because it's the, you know, the best drug to help prevent osteoporosis, prevents all-cause fractures, right? And she decided to go on hormones in her 70s. 
knowing you have an increased risk of stroke, you have an increased risk of heart disease, you have an increased risk, but is it worth the benefit? She was on hormones for like a week or two. And she's like, all of my aches and pains are gone. You think this could be because of my new estrogen patch? And we're like, yeah. And she's like, I've been in pain for how many years and it's gone now because I threw on an estrogen patch? We're like, yeah. So, you know, it's going into the like, I feel fine. I don't have symptoms. And should she have not gone on that because she was more than 10 years past? It's like, we're individualized. This is where that true informed consent, risk, benefit, my body, my choice of like, we want, you know, we live in Instagram era. We want this black and white. We want this easy. And it's like, it's not, it's a little more complicated, but, but we can do complicated things. It's okay. Mm -hmm. Wow. So prior to the Women's Health Initiative, something like 70% of women were on hormones, and now it's just 5% of people who are menopausal. And also estrogen is over the counter in a few countries, not here. So what do you think it's going to take for the U.S. to start caring about menopausal health or to reverse some of these restrictions or guidelines, et cetera? The boomers getting pissed. <laughs> I mean, I really, I truly think I'm like, I'm within the medical establishment and I'm like, uh, let me tell you, it changes very slowly, right? It changes very slowly. And like, what needs to happen is women saying, my body, my choice. I want to be on this. Can we do it in a safe way? I'll promise to follow up. Like, I want a relationship with the doctor. Like, really, that's the grassroots that I think that needs to happen. And so, what we're seeing is Gen X is like, I don't want to age that way. My body, my choice. I want to. So the Gen X is really what's coming up on the like education empowerment front. I would love if the boomers got a little more vocal about the suffering. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, P Gen X is going to come in and punk rock the heck out of menopause. We're coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I really think all, all of what's happening in menopause right now is because of Gen X. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Oh, wow. Yeah. Interesting. Because they're, they're the young menopause now. I don't even know everything about this, right? Like there needs to be way more research, but I was, my grandma had macular degeneration, which is the most common cause of blindness in the elderly. And she finally lost her eyesight like two years before she died at 96. And I'm like, just the other day, I'm like, I wonder if there's any research on like estrogen and macular degeneration. I know how to access the, I can get through the firewall, right? Of like all the academic stuff. And I'm like, I'll be darned. There's papers on women who take estrogen and postmenopause have a decreased risk of macular degeneration. Like it is, this is not about hot flashes. And I, I do feel like Gen X is starting to get their feathers ruffled as well. You know, like a, a friend of mine who's also a psychotherapist, Eva Clay, she just on a whim decided to gather a whole bunch of women together and do a group on menopause, see how it went. And it was like wildly successful. People were wildly interested in Everybody that. wants to talk about it. Yeah. And it was just her first go at it. And so I think it's starting to brew. And I think there's all these different things that either that have to do with body positivity or even Paulina Poroskova being like, I'm not going to wear makeup and I'm going to be natural and I'm proud of my body. All these different things I feel like feed in together to create a movement and create change, even if it's slowly. So I'm wondering, what are your thoughts regarding how alcohol impacts the chance of getting cancer if you're a woman or if you're postmenopausal versus different hormones impact on women or those who are postmenopausal getting cancer? I mean, the first thing to know is current 
FDA-approved hormone regimens that people use for menopause hormone therapy don't show a risk of cancer. If anything, especially if you're estrogen alone, you have a decreased risk of breast cancer on them. And it's like, we've, we basically have to go back. And it's in the ether, right? Because women will come to me and they'll be like, I don't want to be on estrogen because it causes cancer. And I'll be like, oh, it's so curious. Where did you hear that? And mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know. Right. And I'm like, so you don't know why you're afraid. And they're like, yeah, I don't know why I'm afraid. And I'm like, well, that's interesting to know, right? And I'm like, do you want some education about not being afraid? But to me, it's like all of that has to happen before you go in on a 10-minute doctor's appointment to like decide if, if hormones are right for you. Like, I cannot convince you from fear to acceptance to a prescription in 10 minutes. It's not my job, right? Which is like, I have a book, I have a podcast. And then they come in and they're like, I'm ready. And the testosterone and the estrogen face cream. And let, you know, like they come in, they know what they want. It's like the best thing ever. But it's, so it's like, do you drink a glass of wine every night? And they're like, oh yeah, you know, with dinner. And I'm like, you know, that's related to eight different cancers. It's a class one carcinogen by the World Health Organization. And Canada just said there's zero acceptable dose for women. And they're like, I didn't know that. And I'm like, okay, so you're afraid of something that you have no data on why you're afraid of it. And you take a toxin every day and you had no idea it causes cancer. And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, okay, we got some work to do. Right. I'm always telling people that. I'm like, I go out to dinner with a friend and they're like, oh, you're not going to get a drink? And I'm like, well, you know, I had cancer in 2020 and alcohol is a carcinogen. And they're like, what? It is? And these are smart people, master's degrees or successful, you know, people in successful in different ways. And I just feel like over and over again, I'm having to tell people that alcohol is a carcinogen and people don't know. I think it's trending that there's so many non-alcoholic alternatives now and that like it really is an acceptable way to care about your health. But you mean, just look at it. Like I read the book, Quit Like a Woman, fantastic book. And I'll just get you pissed about how it's marketed to moms, how it's marketed to women, how we're like, we're not selling enough of this, just selling this to the dudes. Let's market it to the women. And then you'll have another reason not to drink. Just to realize how it's so marketed to us as the solution to everything. Mm. The solution to parenting is the solution to being happy. It's the solution to being sad. Like, it's insane. Yeah. Wine mom culture. Wine mom culture. Wine moms. Oh, yeah. Totally. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm like, it's associated with breast cancer. And people post pictures of drinking a beer at the end of their 5K Susan Coleman breast cancer run. And I'm like, you're Mm -hmm. drinking a toxin at the end of your breast cancer run. It's insanity to me. But That's because I see it now as a toxin. I I stopped drinking two years ago, mostly as like, I just, I was ready for my next personal growth challenge. I was like, this will be hard. Let's try this. Yeah, there's a a good BBC documentary on this and I'll put it in the show notes. It's short. I think it's like 50 minutes and it just talks about all the research and all the studies about alcohol being a carcinogen. Yeah, I, I posted the other day. I'm like, hey, where's the FDA black box warning on alcohol? Yeah. Yeah. Let Ugh. alone, do we care about dementia? Do you know what alcohol does to your brain? Right? Like, it's horrible for your brain. And so it's like, if we care about dementia, you shouldn't put a toxin in your brain. Uh-huh. Right? Uh-huh. But yeah, I, I don't think I would have been this adamant had I not done the personal growth work to, like, get it out of my life and to realize my life is so much better without it. And then to be like, do you know your life can be, like, so much better without alcohol? <laughs> it's the coolest thing. Yeah. Oh, and it causes cancer, by the way. If you 
Right, right. Now you had, had said something in passing about testosterone. So, you know, we've talked a lot about estrogen. I would love to know who does or doesn't need progesterone, testosterone. What about those hormones for postmenopausal treatment? Yeah. So progesterone is kind of like the supporting actor, Oscar, right? Of like, if you take systemic estrogen, not vaginal, systemic, so body estrogen, and you have a uterus, you must also take a progesterone. The reason is it protects the uterine lining from unopposed estrogen. Unopposed estrogen can cause, it increases your risk of uterine cancer by 5 to 10% over baseline. So it's not like it's going to give you uterine cancer, but we can get rid of that increased risk by just protecting the uterus with a progesterone. Also, progesterone is wonderful for sleep, side effects, sleepiness. So it really does help the perimenopause, postmenopause sleepiness issue. So that's really kind of the acceptable reason for progesterone. It's kind of the supporting actor in that game. Testosterone's very cool. All bodies have testosterone. Women actually have more testosterone than estrogen. Nobody knows that. Even in med, even in med school, I got taught testosterone's the male hormone, estrogen's the female hormone, which is not true. All genders have estrogen, all genders have testosterone, just in different amounts. But female bodies have more testosterone than estrogen at most times in their adult life. Then you enter menopause, estrogen goes down, testosterone will also go down a little bit slower. The ovaries will still make it, but it still go down. Where do we see an acceptable reason for testosterone? And that's air quotes on a podcast, I know. But isn't it silly? Let's talk about equality again. Isn't it silly that the only acceptable reason for a woman to take testosterone is to increase her desire to have sex, usually with a man? Right. Yeah. So much of it goes back to patriarchy, doesn't yeah. it? So it's much crazy. Of it. I actually had a man point that out to me because I didn't even like pick up on that. I'm like, why is like testosterone is good for great for bone health it's good for muscles really good for the brain i have women on testosterone they're like i got my brain back i'm thinking faster i can math better and once you hear a woman say that about like she notices her brains faster on testosterone you're like how is the only acceptable reason for women to take testosterone for desire to sleep with 90 percent heterosexual people sleep with a man that's really where you're gonna get like the support for giving women testosterone is in sexual desire because there's tons of studies, safety studies and efficacy studies looking at testosterone being the hormone for desire. But I will tell you that a lot of people, you know, they get started on estrogen and they're like, oh yeah, no, I'm sex is a lot better now. I want it more. So it's not black and white that estrogen doesn't play a role and testosterone does. Testosterone just kind of got the label for desire. Does it do anything else for you taking testosterone or is that? Oh, like... yeah. I mean, it's great. again, the woman with who can math better, right? Oh, the, oh yes. Yes, yeah. you said that. Okay. So I'm curious, like for somebody who is, is testosterone at all linked to things like cancer at all? Like, is it, so you could take it. Okay. So you could take it systemically anyway. And, a, you know, a woman with a cancer history could could do that and and not be worried? No, because testosterone converts to estrogen. So if you're not allowed to take estrogen and they allow you to have testosterone, I'd be like, do they know how pharmacology works? Because that's how you get your estrogen is testosterone converts to estrogen. So no, there's still an issue with that. We do have safety data on testosterone post breast cancer again, but I think the world's changing. And the great benefit of me being a urologist is I've seen what we've done in prostate cancer, for example. In prostate cancer, we said testosterone causes prostate cancer. If you've had prostate cancer, never, ever can you ever have testosterone again. 
then we said, oh, but they're suffering. Because remember, we don't like it when the men suffer. They're suffering. Okay, well, let's have you be cured for a couple of years with low risk prostate cancer, and then we'll give you some testosterone. Okay, there are some people suffering still. Okay, well, now we don't treat a lot of prostate cancer. We do active surveillance, so it is different than breast cancer. But even with a diagnosis of prostate cancer on active surveillance, we will let you stay on your testosterone because we know it does not increase your risk of progression. We just did that in like 10 years. There's all these subtle things in the medical community that I don't think people know about, about, you know, how a lot of studies have just been done on men because the medical community feels that women are just too complicated. Like even there's been some studies, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong, that were supposed to be related to things that are just specific to those who, like, say, have a uterus. But they did the studies on men because, again, men are more are less the, less complicated so there's this medication called filbanserin, trade name is Addy, right? So it's uh, one of the two FDA-approved medications for hypoactive sexual desire in women. Works great in men, by the way, but it's for women. Two things on that. The FDA made them do a safety data looking at alcohol and this drug. Number one, they made the study subjects drink a full bottle of alcohol before noon. Number two, it was men that had to drink the full bottle of alcohol before noon. I think mostly because the women wouldn't sign up to do that. So it's interesting if like, okay, well, you made them get wasted on like a very large amount of alcohol and you did it in men and the drug's supposed to be for women. Everything's messed up about that. Number two, the FDA said, yeah, we're just going to approve this for premenopausal women, not postmenopausal women. Do we have data on postmenopausal women in Addy? Yes, we do. Does it work? Yes, it does. The FDA drew a line in the sand and said it's only FDA approved for premenopausal women. So bizarre. And, so and then, of course, I think a lot of us know about how we didn't even know the true anatomy of a clitoris until relatively recently. Now, why wouldn't we understand that anatomy unless it's due to patriarchy and just us not feeling like women are important or that our pleasure is important? You know, yeah, I that's mean, it's interesting. Super, it's super interesting. Somebody asked me this yesterday on a podcast. They were like, why doesn't the medical system care about the clitoris? Because let me tell you, the clitoris has can have issues, clitoral phimosis being like the big one, right? And then we have atrophy, we've got arousal issues. Diabetes, high blood pressure causes erectile dysfunction. Why wouldn't it cause clitoris dysfunction? Do we have anywhere near the amount of studies? No, not at all. But the clitoris is not important in conceiving a child. Mm -hmm. It's not. They used to think it was. Like, like Back in a couple hundred years ago, they thought like simultaneous orgasm was what was necessary. But no, it's not. And so, mm -hmm. so I think the right wing... That's like, that's not important. <laughs> well, I think it's just, you know, the medical system is not designed for pleasure, right? Until Viagra, like before Viagra, erections were psychogenic. It was all in your head that you couldn't get an erection. Mm. You know, and then they were like, no, this drug, this, which was initially studied for high blood pressure, right? And nobody wanted to give their study drug back. Uh, yeah, this is a little tangential, but still related. And I don't know what you would think about this. So when I had my hysterectomy to get rid of my cervical cancer in 2020, the doctor said, okay, well, you can have sex in six weeks and you'll, you'll be fine. And so I did. And I had a, a lover that was not small. And even though we were careful, I still thought that I had maybe had like, what is it called? A cervical cuff tear. And I ended up going down to the emergency room and I was in so much pain. And I was talking to a friend of mine who's a doctor and he's like, well, Kate, most things take really more like three months to heal. 
And so then I was talking to a friend of, both Sunny and I are friends with her, Ann Hodder Ship, who is a sex educator and very aware of social justice issues. And I was telling her about that. And she's like, well, Kate, it's like a lot of the medical community is centered around the man's pleasure and getting you back on board to being able to be available for sex. They're going to give you the quickest time window possible of six weeks, even though your, your body wasn't ready for that at six mm-hmm. weeks. And it's just yeah. an interesting take. You know, I'm it just- is. I mean, if you look at the data on postpartum, right, like post-vaginal delivery and pain with sex, like it is way past this whole, you know, six weeks, you're fine. It's like, no, it's like 15 to 30% still of pain a year later. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And, and really normalizing like this bounce back crap is so harmful to people of like, oh, yeah, you should be fine. Like all the professionals who are fine. No, this is trauma to the body. It needs to heal. And it, it might need an, a, a professional. It might need a physical therapist. Right. Yeah. When I start to tie all of this together, along with the fact that more and more my clients that have been born with female parts and still identify as women, you know, what have you. So many of them have autoimmune diseases. You know, a lot of folks, especially folks with a lot of trauma history as well. And it just seems like a lot of these issues that are related to women get get ignored. And when I tie everything together, everything that we're talking about in the last five or 10 minutes, it draws me to the conclusion that, that we just have to advocate for ourselves so much. We have to fight for our health so much. And just simply listening to what your doctor, your first doctor says and stopping there is very ill-advisable in my opinion. It's like, listen to your doctors, listen to different people that can aid you with your health and do your research and fight for your health and and don't be passive about it. That's that's my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And I would add, because this is what I see, right? Like I see so many people with either pain with intimacy or pelvic pain, chronic pain, stuff like that. And I'm, tr- I'm like, I'd love to get, you need to get into a pain therapist. I would love for you to see a physical therapist. Like I'm trying to get this multidimensional approach to pain and people don't want to do it. And I'm like, if you think that the answer lies in a surgeon, you know, or a a pill, it's like, no, it doesn't. Like, we really, like, I think there are good doctors who are trying to be like, therapists are amazing. You know, physical therapists are amazing. You need these people. And so many women are like, no, don't you have anything? Why can't you just fix this? And it's like, because that's not how it works. Yeah, my clients that are actually getting on top of these very big issues, they're doing all the science. They are questioning what they're hearing, and then whatever feels right and true, they are proceeding hard with that. They're also doing things like getting massage or going to an acupuncturist. They're doing like the alternative medicine, like anything that works and all the things. And they're doing things for themselves, like giving themselves a massage or giving themselves an Epsom bath. And those are the ones that are getting better, are those ones that are doing this multi-prong approach and also doing a lot of self-care. Yeah. I agree. You know, and I, I tell them like Western medicine has a has a narrow toolbox. You know, we've got some surgery, we've got some medications. We're very good at what we're good at. We can't do it all. We don't have that. We weren't trained to do it all. And the amount of chronic pain people who don't have any movement practices, you know, or mindfulness practices, and I'm like, you've got to incorporate all of that into your body. 
Yeah, yeah. You had brought up in passing, you said something about the sleep problem in menopause. And then Kate, you bringing up the autoimmune issues. And I think to my own case that I think is probably the case for a lot of other people as well. I have a lifelong history of like mystery autoimmune stuff that's been blown off by doctors and oh, you're just getting old. And we still haven't figured it out. Now they at least believe me. But as I approach menopause, it's like, yes, okay, my brain fog's getting worse. I can't sleep for Jack, you know, and that gets lumped in either by my own brain and by my doctors as like, well, it's, you know, whatever's going on with you kind of thing or, oh, you're getting to that age. But now I'm like, are those I just hear about hot flashes. That's all right? I hear I about. So what else? It only else? took us 40 minutes to find out a reason for you to try hormones. Right. What else should I be looking for aside from hot flashes? That's a sign that maybe menopause is messing with my, my normal homeostasis. Yeah. Joint aches and pains is a big one. Heart palpitations is a big one. Sleep is really big. Moodiness, worsening anxiety, worsening moodiness. All of this stuff, you know, again, the classic GSM is, you know, vaginal dryness, vulvar dryness, itch down there, skin dryness, eyes dryness, mouth dryness. And a lot of this sounds super vague. And, you know, you can't be like, I need hormones. I have a dry mouth, right? Like, it's kind of a stretch to bring that into your doctor. But it is interesting that the women who are like, I was just going to try it. Let me just throw on a patch for three months and see what happens. Like, there's no harm in throwing on a patch for three months to see what happens. And I always encourage women, I'm like, journal your life. Like, how's your body feel, right? Because you got to be able to go back and be like, oh, I am better. I didn't realize I was getting up like three times a night. I didn't realize. Like, re- write it down because you won't know if you're better. But sometimes mm-hmm. it's just dramatic. You know, yeah, people okay. are like, and, and my, shoulder, I don't know. my shoulder pain's gone, you know. Yeah. And I don't, you probably can't answer this, but like for me, you know, as I said, I had cancer in 2020 and then now I I have some joint pain and I'd certainly have dry eyes. I take omega-3 and use drops for it. But like for somebody like me, is there anything that I can do about it? Because I'm getting the sense from my oncologist that I should just do like the vaginal cream, like estrogen vaginal creams and stick to the vaginal stuff. But right now I'm not even taking that, but Is there anything for somebody like me that might help dry eyes and joints that maybe has had cancer before? Yeah, I mean, I would, again, we're not here to diagnose or treat you, but I I would challenge the fact that you're not allowed to have hormones. Okay. Okay. All right. I would, I would challenge that. Okay. Well, I'll just keep, I'll just keep looking and poking around. And as far as like, you know, non-hormonal treatments for all these things, I don't know. I'm a urologist. I'm a hormone expert. Like, yeah, you have to see other people for those things. I have no idea. No, I, I appreciate it. Thank you for setting the boundary. I, I, I appreciate that. I'm just, it's like we got you here. And so I'm going to ask. But I also wanted to ask, what would you say a little bit more about sexuality post-menopause? You know, like anything that you have to say about sexuality after menopause? Because I think, you know, there's so many people that they get postmenopausal and They'll say, my clitoris is losing stimulation and I don't have any sex drive. They will say positives, like I'm choosing better partners now because I'm not like ruled by my sex drive. And they'll say that this is the time of your life where all of a sudden you can really find your big epic love because you're not so ruled by these hormones. But I'm just wondering what else you would say about sexuality post-menopause. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the education on general urinary syndrome and menopause is huge. I'm a huge proponent of vaginal estrogen. I look at skin and vulvas every single day that have had 
have been affected by people not being on hormones. And again, if it doesn't bother you, you don't have to do anything for it. If you're not sexual, but, but you might want to be. So should we, you know, maintain these structures? So that education is number one. Number two, you know, there is some data that as our bodies age, we do need different things. We do need more vibration to help. You know, it might not just come as easily as it did when we were 18 and we had like testosterone of 100 in our bodies. So I think explore, explore what works for you. But really challenge the, because society's stigma is older people aren't sexual. Older people don't want to have sex. It's like all of the society dogma on aging and sexuality, which is absolute crap, right? If you look at Peggy Kleinplatz's book, Magnificent Sex, right? It's like, they're not young. These are not young people, the people who have the magnificent sex. You know, <laughs> they, they really work on their like, body acceptance and their body image and what I need and how to communicate and how to prioritize pleasure, like all these good things that are their skills, right? And you can get better at the skills the more time you have to work on them. Uh But I I mean, I have patients all the time. They're in their 70s. They're in their 80s. They've maybe not had been sexual for quite a long time. And then they like get into this bloom of sexuality at 73 it might look different, right? There might be some orthopedic considerations. We need to get some different pillows or different positions. He might need some Viagra. She's more than likely on a vaginal estrogen product. They use lube, right? Like it's less penis and vagina focused. It's more on intimacy, pleasure, being with each other when they experience pleasure. So it looks different, but that is a wonderful thing. Uh-huh. I had a friend, I'm not exactly sure the setting, maybe she was working at a retirement community, but she had a, the sort of job where she would like knock on doors and check on them or whatever. And she would joke about how like one time, for example, she knocked on a door and three people in their 70s who had just had a threesome and they were still nude, like opened the door. They're like, hi, Amy, you know, like buck naked, just had their threesome. 70s. It's like, there's a lot of myths about sexuality after 70. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, the reason that I got in, why I know so much about hormones is because of sex, right? Like, because I started out sex educator, podcast, book, and then people's like, yeah, but you know about menopause. Well, you know what happens after menopause. Well, you know, but because of menopause. And I was like, it was the same deep dive I took when people were like, women are too complicated. We'll never figure them out sexually. We don't know anything. I'm like, is it true? right? Is it true about menopause? And so a deep dive into the hormones and the science and who can actually take hormones and why we're so afraid of the damn things and how it can help. So yeah, thanks to sex, I know a lot about menopause now. And it can you know destroy all the myths of like, dude, people are having fantastic sex after menopause. It might look different. They might need to take some hormones or, or if they can't work on lubes and vibrators and better communication and all the other things that you, you need. And, hor- you know, just to clarify, hormones are not like the magic bullet, right? It's not like throw on a patch and you'll be young forever and never have health problems. And I think sometimes like especially it, it makes people who can't take hormones feel bad. Mm-hmm. You know, because they're like, I'm missing out on this fountain of youth. I was like, it is not a fountain of youth, <laughs> but we've got some pretty good data that it's can be pretty good for you. Uh, yeah, this whole conversation has been amazing. Like I said, I am like gonna go talk to my doctor, and I think about myself, Kate, a lot of the the colleagues that we have that are experiencing menopause or about to be experiencing menopause. We're very well read. We like to research. You know, this is what it's like. Our brain is like, yes, let's read all the studies. And we're still confused. 
So I think about the average person. It's like, where do they go to get resources, et cetera? So I'd love in closing, not only for you to maybe give a couple of pointers as to where to go to get some of this good information, but also I know one of those places is you. So let us know also where people can find you, hear your podcast, et cetera. Yeah, thank you. Kelly Casperson MD is my website. That's it just got revamped and it's so pretty. So check out my new website. The podcast is You Are Not Broken. I basically alternate the podcast between like sex education and hormone education. And it's basically like back and forth. So you're gonna you're gonna get both on there. I have a membership if you want more access and I do live, you know, coaching and stuff like that. I am gonna be putting out a menopause book, but it's gonna be like books. It's going to be like two more years. Um, Heather Hirsch is an amazing educator. She's an internal medicine doc. She's got a podcast that's all about hormones. Mary Claire Haver is a gynecologist who's passionate about hormone education. The Menopause Society has a pretty decent website. It's a little more dry, I think, personally, because like you got to entertain people to make them pay attention, right? But like good factual places because the internet wants to sell you stuff all the time. And the internet wants to just tell you to do crazy stuff. To ba- Anytime you hear balance your hormones and anytime you hear bioidentical, those are marketing terms that don't actually mean anything. So those are two like red flags and there's tons of balancing on the internet and tons of like pay more for the bioidentical. It's a marketing term. All the FDA approved standard meds that your insurance pays for are bioidentical now. So it's a marketing term. So watch watch out for the people who want to make money off of you. Because there's 52 million midlife females in this country. It's big business. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Thank you so much again. This has just been my mind is expanded. And I want to encourage those listening along. I'm sure your minds are expanded too. go off and do all your research and follow the podcast and If you like the conversations that we have here on Open Deeply, I encourage you to hit that subscribe button if you haven't already, so you can be sure to get a notification when it is once again time to join us to Open Deeply. Thank you for listening. Find us online at opendeeplypodcast.com and on social media at Kate Marie or at Sunny Megatron. Check back bi-weekly for new episodes. And until next time, remember, your authentic truth is only found when you dare to open deeply. Intro and outro voice by the queen goddess, Frenchie Davis. Intro and outro music by the Baltimore Bull, Rob Burrell.